0: People are too short term oriented in their investment decisions. They chase performance, they go in and out of stocks constantly and we all know that this costs a lot of transaction costs. Even in the world of discount brokerages, the transaction costs accumulate and the funny thing is that the performance gets worse.
1: Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Today's episode is sponsored by the Valuation Masterclass Online, the complete, proven, step-by-step online course to guide you from novice to valuation expert. Podcast listeners can claim your amazing 35% discount by going to myworstinvestmentever.com deals. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment, and I'm here with featured guest, Joe Clement. Joe, are you ready to rock?
0: As always, I'm ready to roll and to rock. <laughs> yeah, let's
1: do it. Well, for those you know, loyal listeners out there, you'll recognize Joe from episode 41, where he talked about his worst investment ever. But that's behind us now. Today, we are gonna talk about one of his great achievements. And that is, he's recently written a book that I think is gonna be interesting for you. But before we get into the book, let me just remind you about Joe. Joe Clement is a research analyst and former chief investment officer with 20 years experience in financial markets. He spent most of his career working with wealthy individuals and family offices advising them on investments and helping them manage their portfolios. Joe studied mathematics and physics at Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich and graduated with a master's degree in mathematics. During his time at the Federal Institute of Technology in Switzerland, Joe experienced the technology, technological or technology bubble of the late 1990s firsthand. And you can learn about that in episode 41. (laughs) Through this work, he became interested in finance and investments and studied business administration at the University of Zurich and Hagen, Germany, graduating with a master's degree in economics and finance and switching into the financial services industry in time for the run-up to the financial crisis. Joe, take a minute and fill in further tidbits about your life.
0: Yeah, first of all, all my friends tell me never to change industry ever again because whenever I do it a couple of years later, everything breaks down and you get another catastrophe. Here's Uh, the source, here's
1: the source.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So exactly, exactly. There's a difference between correlation and causation and in my case, (laughs) definitely causation. So I promise not to change from the financial industry and stay here until I retire. And in the last year or so or well, not quite a year since we last spoke, Mm. quite a few things have been going on. And I've started my own blog, which is free to subscribe to for everybody. So just go to Jay Clement and you've got it in the notes to this podcast. And I've written a book, a book that was actually, to be honest, compliments to you. It was kind of inspired by the episode we did back then together. Because as you mentioned, we talked about my biggest mistake that I made back then.
1: Mm. and
0: I was actually quite fascinated by it and started to think about other mistakes I made and other mistakes other people made and back in my old job back then I was starting to write about all the mistakes other people make and then I thought to myself Who am I to tell other people what mistakes they're making? I've made so many mistakes myself. I have no right to talk about, (laughs) to tell other people what they did wrong. And so from there, I went like, okay, but I made, I mean, I made tons of mistakes in my life. I mean, it would probably fill an entire season of your podcast all by myself, but I don't want to embarrass myself too much. Besides, it would be really, really bad for my self-confidence. And so I decided, well, why don't I just start to collect mistakes that I have made in my life as an investor? And then I see other people make all the time. Mm. And I came up with a list of seven mistakes that every investor makes, which is the title of the book. That's exciting. Um, and how to avoid them. And how to avoid them, obviously, because I always wanted to write a self-help book. You know, the kind of thing, you know, like I bought Amazon at its IPO. Here's how you can spot the next Amazon or how to get rich in 10 days and, and things like that. Yeah. The problem that I have with these self-help books and with writing one is you know, I've got a conscience and uh, (laughs) I've got integrity and honesty. And I know many of these self-help books just don't work. Yeah. So I couldn't write a book about just the seven mistakes that everybody makes. I wanted to also help people avoid them. And Mm. in order to do that, I basically sifted through all the research, the academic research, the practitioner research and the evidence why these mistakes are mistakes and find techniques that I've developed and used myself over the last 20 years of how to avoid these mistakes, how to mitigate them, how to get better at investing through some simple techniques. Man, I'm getting excited.
1: Now, let's get into it. Shall we go through the mistakes or how would you like to do this?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a quick... To give you a quick idea of the seven mistakes, and we probably won't have time to go through all of them, is I start with an exercise that is always happening this time of year. It's a new calendar year, and you can open up newspapers and go on TV and you see, oh yeah, somebody is uh, predicting where the stock index will be at the end of this year, or where the dollar will be at the end of this year, or whatever it is. Exactly. The crystal ball. And you can find that in every publication of every financial institution. And it is not worth the paper it's printed on. Mm. funny thing is that a lot of analysts know that this is an exercise in futility, yet they still do it. And so I basically recommend everybody to just ignore them. Don't even go there. And one technique actually to improve your forecasting for these kind of 12-month forecasts is to just assume that the dollar will be in one year's time where it is today. Sounds stupid. Sounds incredibly Mm. stupid. But there is lots of empirical evidence out there that this forecast, in quotation marks, is actually better than the consensus forecast and better than about 95% of all analysts in this world. And the same thing is true of interest rates and the same thing is true of stock markets. So these forecasting exercises really aren't helpful. And I present a few techniques like this, how to get better when it comes to your investment forecasts, which eventually you have to make Mm
1: -hmm. because
0: investing is not about the past. Investing is about the future. So that's the first mistake I discussed. The okay. second one is a very
1: that, common that, that's one. That's exciting. I mean, uh, I did yeah. my dissertation on the forecast accuracy of analysts around the <laughs> world. And my conclusion was uh, 25, meaning they were 25% off and they were always optimistically wrong, which would yeah. mean that on average, they would forecast that a company was going to make 125 and, in reality, the company would make a hundred, and I also look twelve months ahead rather than a lot of times, you know this is one of the sneaky things that we get in the area of forecasting that can be misleading is if you watch the news, the financial news, someone may say, oh g e just uh, missed their number by one cent, let's say." Mm-hmm. And I always wondered, you know, how could this be that it's just one cent? I mean, that's amazing how accurate these analysts are. But actually what's happening is that they're, they're revising their forecasts all along. So it's really that one cent different is a forecast from a week ago as opposed yeah. to 12 months ago. And we have to have longer term forecasts that are accurate. You know, if, if a long term forecast was accurate, it would potentially produce outperformance because you could get into that idea you know, and, and have time to invest in it and let it go. But then the question is, can we really accurately forecast 12 months ahead? And I think you've given us some good
0: guidance there. So what's number two? Yeah. Number two is a very common one, especially for retail investors, is short-termism. Yeah. People are too short-term oriented in their investment decisions. They chase performance. They go in and out of stocks constantly. And we all know that this costs... A lot of transaction costs, even in the world of discount brokerages, the transaction costs accumulate. And the funny thing is, the performance gets worse. And let's not even talk about, start talking about tax effects and things like that, that you have short term gains. And if you're US citizens, they are taxed at a different rate than long term gains and things like that. Just the very fact that you go from A to B and back to A and then to C and then to D and then to another stock just costs you a lot of money and and diminishes your performance. The hilarious thing is that it's not just retail investors that do that. It's big institutions as well. Mm. And They might not do it on a day trading basis or on a weekly basis. They might say, oh, no, we're long-term investors. Oh, Yeah. And then you look at the pension funds and they give their fund managers that they hire uh, maybe a year, then two years. And after three years of underperformance, they go like, oh, no, 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 we got to do something. You know, we can't just sit still. We got to change something here. And it turns out that usually after three years, they fire underperforming managers. Mm. And they hire some hotshot new manager who has outperformed for the last three, four years or so. And then everything turns around because (laughs) what happens is that the manager they just hired starts to get an underperformance while the manager they just fired is actually the one who recovers because everybody knows that every fund manager has down years and up years and good and bad periods. And usually they get fired at the end of their bad periods just before the outperformance kicks in. Yeah. So there's there's so many,
1: so many things about this particular topic of short termism your point number 2 there's you know this whole thing about you know for anybody to implement any strategy in investing you know you'd be lucky if it outperformed or if first you'd be lucky if it outperformed but yeah. second of all you know the question is like let's just look at every month of the year and you ask the question you know how many months out of the year did this strategy beat the market you yeah. know you'd be lucky if that was 55% of the time or 60% of the time that would be fantastic and yes. That means any strategy is losing almost half the time. And yeah. in fact, and you what you find- half the time you're tempted to change it. And that's where a lot of strategies, a lot of the reason why it's important to, to stay with someone that's been through that is that they've actually, if they stayed true to their strategy, they've actually shown discipline in that down period, which can be valuable you know, throughout the life of their investment career.
0: Indeed. And you actually just gave the example that I opened this this chapter with. So uh, you somehow read my mind. There you go. Well, it also, uh, I remember that the
1: great paper by Odeon, I think it was in uh, Terence Odeon in uh, trading is hazardous to your wealth. Yes. and that, that's I'm, the one I'm sure that that's, did. yeah, that, that was that such it, a great yeah. one. That helps us to understand that trading, you know, trading is a thing. Now there is one last thing I want to say about this, about something recent that I saw in the newspaper, which is that Singapore has now made it voluntary that companies, certain companies that are listed in the stock market give their quarterly results. And this is to address short-termism, but I want to give my opinion, which is that I think this is this is what we call throwing out the baby with the bathwater. The problem is not the information coming out on a consistent basis. The mm. problem is the way people are handling that. And then to stop the flow of information is such a mistake in my opinion. It's like yeah. saying, Okay, people are, you know, having a hard time focusing with smartphones, therefore we must, you know, get rid of smartphones as an example. It could no. it, it could, you know, it doesn't really solve the underlying problem, in my opinion. So anyways, that's just my no, I
0: can- I completely agree with you. And in the book, I give a couple of techniques of how you can better handle the information. And it starts with something very, very simple. You mentioned people are looking at their strategy and they see that on a monthly basis, it outperforms only, say, six out of 10 months. Mm. Well, why are you looking at a long-term strategy every freaking month? Yep, yep. It makes no sense.
1: <laughs> uh, it's hard not it to do.
0: Long-term. I look at my long-term investments once a year when I fill out my tax form because I have to. And that's enough. And you know what the best thing about that is? Mm. If I look at the same strategy once every year, let's assume I just invest in stocks. If I look at stocks once every month, I see them go up about seven out of 12 months of the year and five out of 12 months they go down and I lose money. If I look at it every year, Three out of four years, I've made money and I'm happy. Mm. So I sleep better by not looking at that stuff too often. And at the same time, I have better performance in the long run. Got it. All right. Number three. Number three is kind of sounds absurd if you put it right next to it, which is why I did it, is being too long-term oriented. (laughs) Uh, I come historically in my career from a value investing perspective. And everybody who knows anything about investing over the last decade is that value did not perform at all. It underperformed for the last 10, 15 years or so. And I started my career as a value investor and as a hardcore value investor. And I stuck with value and it underperformed and I stuck with it and I underperformed and I stuck with it and I underperformed and it stuck with it until there comes a point when you say, Look, am I a long term investor or am I just stubborn here? Mm. And the thing is that, you know, in some extreme cases, if you stick with a long term strategy for too long, you can be so much underwater that it will take you years, if not decades, to recover. Got it. Take, for instance, the Nasdaq and the technology bubble at the end of the 90s, uh, which we talked about in the previous episode that we were together. Yep. The Nasdaq declined by about 80% on an index level uh, mm. after 2000. Some of the stocks, the famous ones like Amazon, declined 90%. Now, how long does it take you to recover these losses when you're down 80%? percent mm. Because you, you have to not just go up 80%, you have to go up 500% in order to get a back to zero. Right. And if you're down 80%, then it usually takes you more than a decade to recover your losses. And after that, you just had a zero return in total. Yep. So one of the things that I talk about in this third chapter is that it is a mistake to just let strategies run uncontrolled. You need to have some risk management and some risk control in place where there comes a point when you just take that risk off the table, not because it's a bad strategy, but because you want to survive.
1: Got it. That's the reason why we all want to read that book, because you're going to explain a lot more about that, which I'm excited to talk more about. But let's move on to number four.
0: Yeah, number four. Quite simple, not learning from the past, and this is the core of what you're doing here with your great podcast, is recollect the past, analyze the past, learn from it. Too many investors around the world, and not just retail, professional investors, fund managers, CIOs of big institutions have to make the same mistakes over and over again. And there is a very, very simple technique like an investment diary where you write down your past decisions, why you made them, and then check the outcome regularly and then you start reflecting.
1: Mm. Why did
0: I make that mistake? If it wasn't a mistake, why was I right? Was I right for the right reasons or was I just lucky, meaning right for the wrong reasons?
1: Yep. It reminds me of the... Dr. Deming who I studied with when I was young and he has the PDSA Cycle which means plan do study act and it's just a simple way to summarize the scientific method We come up with a hypothesis We test that hypothesis. We look at the result if it gave the result that we were expecting then maybe it's true and we continue down that line, but if it gave a result that was different than we expected We need to go back and revisit our thinking process. And that's the process of learning in the scientific method. So great. Number five.
0: Yep. To number five, which is one that I am particularly interested right now, which is not looking at the other side of a story. We live in a world where there are a lot of people who kind of try to promote some long-term trend investing, some thematic investing. And that's great because I'm a big fan of long-term trends and I'm a big fan of thematic investing because it is a great way to identify what's going to shape financial markets and the economy and our world over the next, say, five to 10 years. Mm. However, the problem often is Let's take demographics, demographic change as an example. People always tell you, oh, yeah, okay, so we in the West live in an aging population. So you've got more older people, fewer younger people. And so where the growth really is, is by servicing older people, retirees, and then people who are really old and need a lot of health care and other things like live in care homes and things like that. That is correct. Nothing wrong with that. So as you get more older people and an older population in the West, the demand for certain pharmaceuticals that fight dementia and Alzheimer's, the demand for care homes, or if we don't even go that far, but the demand for trips and vacations for older people, say cruise vacations, cruise ship vacations, that rises faster than overall demand. Mm. That's the demand side. And then what people forget is the supply side. How many products are there? How many companies develop drugs against Alzheimer's and dementia? How many people buy care homes for assisted living for older people? How many travel companies have packaged holidays for older people in their 60s? You know, The young retirees mm. who want to, want to explore the world. And that is what is usually forgotten. And the problem is prices are made as the balance between supply and demand. And if demand rises slowly, as in the case of demographics, but supply can adapt and adjust to it very, very quickly in a fraction of the time. I mean, it takes about 10 years until demographic change actually materializes. And how fast can you build a care home? One to two years max. How fast can you develop products for older people? One to two years max. So, by the time the demographic change comes around, the supply has already adjusted and you make no money. Actually, mm. doing that. And well, that's a common mistake that I see made everywhere.
1: What is the, uh, I'm just thinking about Malthusian, Malthus. He was the economist from, I think it was, yeah, and yeah, the British economist who was talking about how the population is growing exponentially, but the food supplies is growing linearly, therefore we have a population problem. But what most people are missing in that in that type of a calculation is the adaptability of the human you know nature to, for instance, as you say, meat demand. so there's many people that have said over the years, we're going to starve and all this thing because but in fact, we've come up with more efficient ways to produce food and all of that so. All right. Number six.
0: Number six. Well, none of us is an expert in everything. I mean, it might come as a surprise to you because you're an expert in everything, but I sometimes have to delegate my money and investment decisions to other people. They're called fund mm. managers mm. I buy funds in the hope that these specialists will actually be able to give me good value for money. And that good value for money, if it's an index fund or an ETF, just means low fees and track the benchmark as closely as possible and as safely as possible. But we also typically want to invest in active management because I don't know about you, but I'm not just happy with just being average. I want to have a little bit of extra return. And there are some areas where I think active management can add value. So I hand my money to active fund managers from time to time. And the mistake that a lot of people make and that I made in the past, because the data just wasn't there, is to hand it to fund managers who weren't active enough to actually have a decent chance of outperforming after their fees. Mm. Because they had basically a benchmark or closet indexers. They were pretending to be active, but if you actually closely looked at their portfolio, their active share, their tracking error, all these kind of measurements and metrics that measure how far they are away from the benchmark, yep. they weren't that far from the benchmark. And that was something that we didn't pay attention to 20 years ago because, as I said, we didn't have the data. Yeah. We didn't have the knowledge. But now we have. Now there is data available for everybody basically about active share and and based on that data, you can check, does this manager have a decent chance of outperforming? I'm not going to say that he will do, yep. but he at least has to give himself a good chance. So what is the, what is the title of this number six? Not being active enough. Okay, got uh,
1: it. And we're not talking about exercise. We're talking about making sure no, that the fund manager, active. if you're going to go with an active fund manager, you better make sure he's active enough to have a chance to outperform. Otherwise... He's a closet indexer, and you might as well just put your money into an ETF or an index fund, correct?
0: Exactly, exactly. Then you're better off with an index fund anyway. And when I say not being active enough, I also don't mean, going back to mistake number two, not being active in the sense of, you know, let's trade a lot and Mm. have a high turnover, but just kind of have views, have opinions, and have conviction in them, and then let the chips fall where they may. Got it.
1: All right, and number 7, hold on, one second. Do I hear a drum roll? Drum
0: Ta-da. Roll. Number, number seven. 7. The number 7 is something that I have been passionate about for about 10 years now when I started to learn about that, namely that maybe we're all making the mistakes of believing modern finance theory. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go down to the very kind of foundations of what investing is all about. And these foundations state, if you look at modern portfolio theory and so on, they start with assumptions that are taken for granted. Give you one example. We all think in equilibriums or equilibria. What is the plural of equilibria? Equilibria, equilibrii. I had never had a lesson of Latin in my life. I apologize to (laughs) all the listeners. I'm no
1: help there. I can tell you that.
0: Okay, so we all think think the financial market or any kind of market heads towards an equilibrium (laughs) of supply and demand. And the only way prices change is some new piece of information comes along and that shifts either demand or supply or both. And then you get a new equilibrium and that goes there similarly if you look at valuations of stock markets we think that if market valuations are too high they are supposed to come down to some long-term average Mm. well i am a physicist by training as i mentioned and in physics we learn about complex dynamic systems And complex dynamic systems are something that sounds fantastically exciting and really hard to understand. But in fact, every one of us has uh, knowledge of one particular complex dynamic system. It's called the weather. Oh, okay. I was going to (laughs) say the body. The body. (laughs) Yep. But I usually take the weather. Yep. Because the weather is something like the financial markets that is constantly changing. Mm -hmm. It never is weather that doesn't change well where you Mm. live there's always nice weather and sunshine that might be different but where i live in the uk it's never the same and if you don't like the weather just wait a day or two and Mm. you get a different one and so that has some implications because if there is never an equilibrium it doesn't make sense to think in equilibrium terms about the weather Right. And it doesn't help you if you forecast the weather saying, oh, yeah, now it's two degrees above the long-term average in January or in February or in March. And that means that over the next two days, the weather has to cool down by two degrees. That would be a horrible forecast. Right. And the same thing with, with stock market valuations. You know, it's like, yes, valuations might be 20% above uh, their long-term average. And that doesn't mean they have to go down. Mm. So that equilibrium may or may not exist, but it is never going to be reached.
1: It reminds me in my book, Nine Valuation Mistakes and How to Avoid Them. I talk about how finance, there are no laws of finance, unlike, let's say, the law of gravity, which the law of gravity hasn't changed since it was initially discovered and articulated. And we have formulas. And if you are a young person coming out of an engineering school, you can actually calculate exactly how to use the law of gravity. But in the world of finance, we don't have any laws. We have hypotheses, like the efficient market hypothesis. We have models like the capital asset pricing model as an example, and we have theories like the arbitrage pricing theory. But these models and theories are not laws, and that means that they're built upon very shaky assumptions, number one. And number two is that even with those shaky assumptions, they cannot be consistently applied such as you know, calculating a company's beta is a very complex thing. And even if you try to calculate the right beta, that methodology will never work for every company's beta. Unlike the calculation of gravity and the impact of gravity using the law of gravity in constructing a thousand homes, each home is going to respond the same way to the law of gravity of the weight on the roof and all of that stuff. So it creates, my new words is now complex dynamic system. Yes, and I And be- I believe that this is one of the reasons why when young people ask me about, is artificial intelligence and machine learning and are these things going to take over finance? I'd say that it's a very difficult challenge because it is a complex dynamic system, but also it is a somewhat self-correcting system. And therefore, the identification, if an artificial intelligence machine identifies a prior pattern, just as they go to implement that, the environment may change.
0: Yes, that's what George Soros calls uh, reflexivity. And that's why I'm with you. I think artificial intelligence and these new tools that are built on big data analysis, they're going to help us get better. Mm. I have no doubt about that but they're not going to make us redundant and they're not going to end finance as right. an exercise where things go more all the time.
1: <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I don't want to take more time on this. I think the listeners have gotten a tremendous amount of value out of this. I know I've gotten a lot of value out of these seven points and we're going to put the links to the book. I've seen that you have it on Amazon and we'll put any other links related to that. But as we wrap up, Do you have any parting words for the audience?
0: Yes, don't despair. We all make mistakes, even the best of us, and the key is learn from them and improve your investment every day, every year, and over time, you will get better, and things will get better, and you will make new mistakes that you can eventually write a book about.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right, well. Fantastic. That's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. And ladies and gentlemen, start making new mistakes, not old ones. (laughs) (laughs) Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.